One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from the Daily Beast, and believe it or not, this is our 150th episode. And really, I could not think of a better way to celebrate than by welcoming back on the podcast a man who has had a hand in creating so many of my all-time favorite comedy movies and TV shows, Judd Apatow. The last time Judd and I spoke, back in the fall of 2019, we taped the episode in his LA office, where we had what I thought was a really funny and insightful conversation about the state of comedy and his role in it. We did this one on Zoom, but I really think it was just as good, maybe even better. As always, there was way too much to talk about with Judd, but we covered a ton of ground, including his upcoming documentary about George Carlin and his new book of interviews, Sicker in the Head, which features long conversations with previous Last Laugh guests like Sasha Baron Cohen, Margaret Cho, John Cleese, Whitney Cummings, and more as well as a few dream guests of mine, like David Letterman, Whoopi Goldberg, and Will Ferrell. We also talked about his latest movie, The Bubble, which arrives on Netflix this Friday and might be his most purely comedic film to date. Here's a clip in which the COVID safety officers of the fictional dinosaur action movie within the comedy film brief the cast, including Keegan-Michael Key, Pedro Pascal, and Judd's wife, Leslie Mann, on some new developments. You have all tested negative for yes. the virus. However, some of you have tested positive for influenza, which is the good virus. The good one, yeah. And two of you tested positive for two separate cases of sexually transmitted diseases. Wait, how could we have got the flu? We've all been in the bubble. We've narrowed it down to a delivery person and one of the gardeners, and we are handling it. Well, if this is just the normal flu, I think we could just push on and complete the day, right? Absolutely, yeah. Actors are some of the toughest people I know. Amen. We can handle it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I once played host to a 30-foot-long tapeworm during Cliff Beast 2, <laughs> and nobody even knew. As you can imagine, it only escalates from there. I should note that Judd and I connected before all of the insanity that went down at the Oscars, so you won't hear us talking about that. But we did start by talking about the Directors Guild Awards, which he had just hosted a couple of nights earlier, and how we thought the Oscars might go with his friend Amy Schumer as co-host. We had no idea. All right, let's get into it. Here's me with returning champion, Judd Apatow. So yeah, how's it going? How did the DGA Awards go? I saw you were, you were just hosting this past weekend. What was, uh, how'd it go? The DGA Awards went very well. I was happy. I like doing award shows that are not broadcast. <laughs> I know. I didn't get to see it. it was, I, I wish I could have seen it. but That is the key, that we, we don't let them pipe in the audio of my monologue and what I do into the journalist's room. <laughs> really? And I don't think they like it, but it makes it more about the directors and having a good time and us all you know, connecting, and then I don't have to worry about everyone broadcasting everything I do because I'm really only doing it for that room. Yeah, it's a little lower pressure than something like hosting the Oscars or uh, hosting something that a million people are going to see. Well, the funny thing is, even though these things are small, because everything gets passed around, 
you can never think that you won't be judged for everything that you say because people can take one sentence or one joke and then suddenly that becomes a headline that goes everywhere even though you thought you were in a room or somewhere that no one was paying attention. Yeah, as far so, as I can tell, that didn't happen with this one. I, I didn't see any uh, headlines go up. Well, you could never doubt the lack of interest in me, no matter what I do. <laughs> do you have any uh, advice for your friend Amy Schumer on the Oscars? Uh, she's one of three hosts, but uh, I think it should be interesting to see her up there. Well, I've seen her set because we were both working on our on our film monologues at Largo, <laughs> and uh, she is loaded, so she does not need assistance. She knows what she's doing. It's fun to see her do it and then me do it because she's a legendary comedian with something I don't have called charisma. <laughs> and so the crowd really goes wild for it. I have to work a little harder. So before we get to your new movie and everything else that you have going on, I have to just spend a few minutes talking about Euphoria, which yes. uh, was so phenomenal this past season and your daughter Maud's performance. Um, but particularly, I wanted to ask you about these uh, these memes and tweets that have gone around, which I don't know if you've seen, where it's basically people discovering that her dad is, quote, some director <laughs> and that uh, that she and the the implication being that she is now far more famous than you are, um, and that you know she she has some director dad, but but what's really important is you know her and her performance. So have you seen those? And did you have any reaction to that uh, that take? Well, I went online and I looked at my Twitter feed and I saw it. My name was trending, and the first tweet was something like. Uh, Judd Apatow is Maud's dad, something like that. And then someone else was like, who the fuck is Judd Apatow? And then someone else was like, he's a director. And then that person said, well, I don't know every nerdy indie director. And then someone else was like, he's not an indie director. He did Knocked Up. And it, it was like this fight between people who knew who I was and a much larger amount of people who didn't know who I was. So I thought, wow, I'm the first person trending because no one knows who I am. And I took a lot of pride in that. And it's this, odd, it's this odd transition from Maude being Judd Apatow's daughter to you being Maude Apatow's father, in a way, in the public consciousness, right? Exactly. Which was always, by the way, the plan. I, I, I said, there's not a lot of Michael Douglas fans who, who you know are obsessed with Kirk Douglas. You know, it's like you're supposed to surpass your parents. That's what you want. You want to be uh, the better version. So that's already happened. And uh, I'm very excited for it. I mean, the show is incredible. And I, I sat and watched it in a puddle of tears. You know, she works on it and works so hard. But you don't really get a sense of what it's going to be from how she talks about it when we see her because she just talks about, you know, the pressure of filming a scene and what she was trying to do and hoping it came across. And then you see it as a finished story and it's so moving. And Sam Levinson does such brilliant work. And I just thought what he did in terms of paying off all the storylines for the last two years was pretty remarkable. And then I just feel bad about myself that I'm not a better director. 
That's the main feeling I get. Like, am I supposed to move the camera like that? Because I don't know how to do that. Yeah. Well, it also made me think, I wish I had had that budget in my school plays uh, that, that she got, that Lexi got yeah. for that play. It was pretty uh, high production value. I, I, I just love the surreal nature of it and that it all became about grief and the trauma that had affected all of these kids and led to these different behaviors. It, it was it was really powerful. I was pretty nervous for her as well, watching her relationship with Fez develop. So I, I could only imagine what that was like for you <laughs> as her father. Well, they have such amazing chemistry together. Yeah, they do. And they're very close friends. So you, you really you know felt romance. And she just did beautiful work. I was, I was very proud of her. What exactly is the idea behind the play? I don't know. It's, it's like about a group of girlfriends who sort of grow up and grow apart. Damn, so it's kind of like a Stand By Me vibe. Yes, exactly. I love that movie. That's Hell exactly yeah. it. <laughs> Come on, now I've watched that film like 50 times. Have you really? That's my shit. Come on. In fact, my, my grandma has it on DVD, you know? Should we watch it? Well, wait until the Euphoria fans actually see Knocked Up and This Is 40 and get to see her, you know, early performances. I think they'll really be blown away. <laughs> I mean, you know, my thing is I think that people don't look back that often, that there's so much new content that I don't know time? if a 15-year-old fi- is like, I wonder if there's a good movie from 2007. <laughs> <laughs> They're just trying you know, to, to keep up with what's coming out now. Uh, meanwhile, your younger daughter, Iris, is so good in your new movie, The Bubble, as a TikTok star. Um, and uh, so, yeah, let's talk about that movie, um, which I just got to see and, and really enjoyed. How did this movie come together? I mean, it obviously was something that you came up with during the pandemic and shot and now is out during and all in the last couple of years. So what was the story behind that film? Well, like most people, I was trying not to go insane from just the the isolation of knockdown. And I started taking two hour walks every morning. And that seems to really help me keep my head together. And that's something I never did. I, 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 I don't think I was one for hikes or nature in any way, but I thought, I guess now's the time. We've all done a lot more walking in the past couple of years. And I spent months doing that, a lot of walks with with my friend Brent Forrester, who is a great writer from The Simpsons and, and The Office and Space Force. And Jay Roach, I used to walk with a ton and still do. And one day I said to Brent, Maybe we should think of things <laughs> like stories. Like we just keep talking about nothing for months. Let's, as an exercise, start outlining stories with no intention of really making most of them, but just as something to talk about. Like, what if this happened? What if that happened? And I, I kept hearing about the NBA bubble at that time. And that made me laugh because I thought of just all these enormous men in a very small space. And there was that <laughs> one guy who went to a funeral and on his way back, he stopped at a strip club and got chicken wings. And he told everybody that he just was hungry. And then everyone was debating <laughs> it because they were like, well, there are good chicken wings at this place. Yeah. And, and But it was a big drama about how dangerous it was to go to a place like that and then go back in the bubble. 
And then I thought, well, that would be a funny play, right? Like a play where everyone in it is seven feet tall. <laughs> and then I thought better of it. And a few days later, I was you know, thinking about what we, we kept hearing about, you know, trouble on Batman, trouble on Jurassic World, trouble on Mission Impossible, and how they were all struggling to keep the productions going. And a lot of my friends were just starting to be asked to work on movies and television shows where they would have to isolate for two weeks in a hotel before shooting started. And then they weren't allowed to leave or see anyone outside of work. You know, a lot of times in Canada, you know, the white Lotus was starting in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I thought, well, that sounds like, I mean, it sounds like a Christopher guest movie. Yeah. That you all could these just different shoot. characters thrown together. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people in one space and maybe that's safe. Maybe if you only, had people shooting in a hotel and on the stage, maybe that's a safer movie to shoot because you could contain it. And I love movies like Tropic Thunder. And it also remind me, reminded me a little bit of a Mel Brooks type of idea. And so I kept outlining it, but I didn't think I would actually make it. But it was making me laugh. And I thought, someone's going to make a movie about this moment, mainly about isolation, because you think about your life and how you're doing. Do you like where you are? Do you like your job and your relationship? And you start judging yourself because you, for the first time in your life, are sitting still for months. And it's fun to do that with heightened characters like actors and actresses. And there were a lot of people pressured to go back to work. And I kept hearing about people in Wisconsin who were trying to quit their jobs at like places where they murder chickens or things like that. And they were changing the law. So if you quit your job, you couldn't get any money from for unemployment. And I thought, oh, the pressure to complete the movie uh, could be funny. And then at one point, I just thought, maybe someone would do this. And I spoke to Netflix and they said, yeah. Go do it. Yeah, I remember the first thing I heard about it was these rumors that you were making a movie with Maria Bakalova and you'd sort of landed her first uh, post-Borat gig. So that was very exciting. <laughs> yes. But it wasn't because she's made several movies since 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 Borat. Maybe this is the first one to come, come out. out. Exactly. Um, was that a, that was a, you saw her in that and really wanted to work with her? Or? Well, I, I saw some early cuts of of the latest Borat. And that's always fun because Sasha's brutal. He really cuts it tight. He cuts a lot of good stuff out. He likes it moving. And when you see the early cut, it's before he has paced it up. And there's always really funny jokes and really deeply troubling jokes that he lets play for a really long time as he's trying to figure out what <laughs> to keep. And so I love seeing those early, early cuts. There was a... a there was a thing in it that made me laugh where I guess there was like a monkey in the box with her when she is shipped to America. Then when she gets there, the monkey is just a skeleton. Yeah, because she ate and it. And there, <laughs> there was a whole sequence where they were giving CPR to the monkey skeleton that really made me laugh. <laughs> they decided was maybe not something to keep. But I loved it. I feel like this movie, you it's also was your kind of... Um, backdoor way into making a you know big budget action movie because you did there are these big uh you know fantasy 
sort of dinosaur sequences in it. Was that fun for you to to try that out? And because it's not something you'd really done before, right? I hadn't done any of that before. And when I started, I thought maybe when we see them shooting the dinosaur movie, the dinosaurs are always a pencil drawing. It looks like the way special effects look before you finish them. Sometimes they're just like a sketch or they're just the crudest version of dinosaurs. Or maybe you would only see the mocap people and you would never see the dinosaurs. And I thought, well, that'd be easy for me and easy on the budget. (laughs) And then slowly it just started making me laugh. What if every time we cut to them shooting the dinosaur movie, Cliff Beasts, it looked exactly like Jurassic Park. It it wasn't a (laughs) a cheap version. We have perfect special effects. And then when things would go wrong, the special effects would disappear and you would just see them on this crappy stage. So as a result of that, I had to learn how to make yeah, it, <laughs> a dinosaur movie. And it's with the people from Industrial Light and Magic, uh, the people who make Star Wars, doing the dumbest dinosaur dick jokes. <laughs> yeah. And it was fun, but it's so much work. And there's only 10, 15 minutes of it in the movie. And it was so work intensive. I can't imagine doing an it entire seems like movie. It, it, got, it. it got a lot more ambitious than maybe you envisioned at the beginning when you had this idea. I think the people I was working with enjoyed the funny version of a dinosaur movie that they got very excited and pitched me amazing jokes and uh, and they were tickled to get to do a weird comic spin of, of what they normally do seriously. I mean, besides that, did making this movie feel different than the ones you made before because it was, you know, made during COVID or even because it, it's a lot more sort of purely silly, like you mentioned Mel Brooks, than, than a lot of your other movies, which have a lot more darkness, I think, to them? Usually I'm trying to get to a deep emotional place and try to find a, a, a way, and I'm trying to find a way to be funny while on some level trying to do a Cassavetes type movie <laughs> or something, at least at the very least inspired by something like that. This time I thought the world is really suffering and I don't really have anything to offer the world except a break. And maybe we all need to commiserate and laugh about how hard this has been. And maybe I could figure out a way to do that that would make people happy. Because you don't want people going, I don't want to see this movie. I just lived through this. This was a nightmare. So uh, it, it really isn't about the disease. People don't have the disease in the movie. It is really about going crazy because you're holed up somewhere. In general, do you feel like the pandemic changed the types of projects that you want to pursue, the things that you that you want to do next? I'm not sure because I, you know, I really enjoyed making The King of Staten Island and trying to explore that type of story in a real credible emotional way. But I do feel like maybe the world really wants a hard laugh right now. And so I'm not sure what it means <laughs> in terms of my motivations for the next one. But I was glad that I could try to make people laugh hard. Because when I was making the movie, I found myself watching things like Ted Lasso and Schitt's Creek and looking for funny things to just make me happy and give me a break. And I'm, I'm glad that I, I did that. And I I think it's really, you know, it's fun to try to go for hard, hard jokes, but it is difficult. It's, it's, uh, 
it, it, that's why I was writing with Pam Brady because she's so much funnier than me. And you know, she co-wrote the South Park movie, and she 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 uh, did uh, Lady Dynamite with Maria Bamford, and she's one of the funniest people ever. And I really enjoyed collaborating with her on trying to figure this out. Yeah, you have really funny people in the movie. Um, you know, had you ever worked with Fred Armisen before? Fred Armisen played Tino, who ran uh, the jazz club in Anchorman. Right, 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 yes. Mr. Burgundy! Tino! So good to see you. How are you? Oh, you're looking fantastic. Tino? Veronica? Veronica, what what a pretty girlfriend. Uh, Drinks are on Tino tonight. No, 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 we're work associates. I work at the station. I'm a journalist there. Oh, okay, okay. This is a good guy. Tino's the finest club owner in the city. My best friend ever, right? Yes. Yes, we have a, a saying in my country about people like him. The coyote of the desert uh, always likes to eat the heart of the young, when the blood drips down to the children for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and only the ribs will be broken in two. <sighs> Tino. Okay. I remember the time just thinking, this is the funniest man ever, and I've always been a gigantic fan, and I'm glad I found something to do with him. He plays the director of Cliff B6, who... He's recently so funny. won Sundance and he won Sundance <laughs> with a movie he shot on his phone while working at Home Depot called <laughs> Tiles of Love. Like he snuck a movie during his shift. Cause I always remember someone shot a movie at Walt Disney world without telling anyone at Walt Disney world, they were shooting some creepy movie <laughs> and, and he's so funny as you know, a first time big budget director being overwhelmed by the situation and, and his budget. Yeah. I, I watching this movie and really anything that Fred does, I, I always tend to think that he might be the funniest person alive, that just the most naturally funny person. He's, he's, he's well, so good. For me as a fan of comedy to be able to give Fred an idea for something to riff on and then sit back behind a monitor and see what happens is my greatest joy. And there were certainly moments when two minutes into a take, we probably had it. And then I just wouldn't say cut, yeah. <laughs> or eight more minutes just to see what Fred did and purely as an audience for that moment, not even caring if it got in the movie, just for my own pleasure. I'm just not going to tell Fred to stop. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned uh, King of Staten Island, which I think when you were on this podcast the first time, which was now, I think, almost three years ago, um, you were in the edit of that and it hadn't come out yet. Um, and I really, really love that movie. Um, and I just, I wanted to, just because it's happening right now, I wanted to see if you've been following everything going on with Pete Davidson and Kanye and the craziness there. And if you have any reaction to that, cause it's gotten kind of insane. Um, and as someone who knows, you know, Pete and knows his yeah. just struggles well, with mental health, it's, it's hard to watch. I mean, my feelings about that are my feelings about everything, which is we all need to have a lot of compassion for each other. There's a lot more levels to everything than people think when they get caught up in the gossip of it. Yeah, it's become a major gossip story, kind of probably fueled mostly by on the Kanye side. I mean, as a culture, it's very easy to be amused by the struggles of other people or struggles by the struggles of celebrities and, and artists. But if you take a minute and think about what's really happening, it really isn't entertainment. You know, there are people involved there are families involved and you want everybody to be safe and you you hope that they all look out for each other and take care of each other so 
all that conflict just concerns me for all involved. Coming up, Judd previews his upcoming documentary about legendary stand-up comedian George Carlin and talks about how he approaches interviewing his own comedy heroes. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to my previous conversation with Judd Apatow and our episodes with some of his closest collaborators, including Paul Feig, Gary Gullman, and Michael Sarah, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Judd Apatow. Thinking about, you know, what's coming, what else you have coming up next, I want to talk about the George Carlin documentary, which I'm very much looking forward to. I really loved your Gary Shandling um, two-part documentary. And um, are there things that you learned working on on that one that you are now applying to this this new one about Carlin? Well, I, you know, I got asked to do this right before the pandemic started, I believe, with my partner, Michael Bonfiglio, who I made the Aved Brothers documentary about and the Doc and Daryl 30 for 30, and he produced the Gary Chandling documentary. I, I, I got nervous about it because I didn't know him, and I wondered if you could capture him without having known him. Yeah, because you didn't have the kind of personal relationship you had with, with Chandling. Yeah, that definitely was my, my biggest concern. And I soon found out that it wasn't like you had a ton of friends you could go to who would just tell you everything. But slowly, the story revealed itself to us, mainly through uh, his daughter, Kelly Carlin. And it really is a fantastic story about, you know, a young guy from, a, a, you know, a family that struggled is you know his father was abusive, and so his mother left the dad and had to raise uh, you know two kids on her own in in the fifties. And he loved entertainment and comedy, and reimagined who he could be multiple times throughout his life. He he really found a way into show business. Then he evolved into you know this very honest comedian and then he kind of ran out of gas and then he got inspired by people like Kinnison and he went harder than any of them 
for the last 15 years of his life. And his body of work is ridiculous. And the thing that's most interesting about it is most comedians work ages out. It's just not that funny after a few decades. There's very little comedy that holds up. And for some reason, his stuff gets better. Everything that he was talking about in the 90s and in 2007 applies to today. And he he's just trending on Twitter all the time. I know. Up yeah. Clips of him and it relates gonna, to everything. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because he does seem like he was very ahead of his time politically. And then now, yeah, his old bits about whether it's about abortion or anything go go viral pretty regularly. Boy, these conservatives are really something, aren't they? They're all in favor of the unborn. They will do anything for the unborn. But once you're born, you're on your own. (laughs) Pro-life conservatives are obsessed with the fetus from conception to nine months. After that, they don't want to know about you. They don't want to hear from you. No, nothing. No neonatal care, no daycare, no Head Start, no school lunch, no food stamps, no welfare, no nothing. If you're pre-born, you're fine. If you're preschool, you're fucked. (laughs) You're fucked. Do you have any insight into how he was able to do that or why why he was so ahead of things like that? I think he just spoke very difficult truths way back, starting in the late 60s. He talked about big pharma back then, about about how it's okay to buy all these drugs at the drugstore, but you couldn't smoke pot, and how all these women were hooked on speed. He he had a, a really funny bit about that, about diet pills, which were basically speed, but you can't smoke a joint. But he was very concerned with the corporate control of the government and how they basically want you stupid, just stupid enough to work, but not, you know, they don't want you, how did he say it? He's like, they want you smart enough to work, but not smart enough to ask difficult questions about how everything is run. And I think he called attention to things we know now when we look at whatever, the Koch brothers or Mark Zuckerberg, he's basically talking about all of that, but decades ago. And it's interesting. Yeah, he was so progressive in a lot of ways. And it made me think if he was around today, would he be kind of a bigger force against the kind of anti-woke comedy that we that we're seeing a lot of, um, whether he could have been sort of a balance to that? Because it seems like some of the biggest names and some of the loudest voices are, you know, are not as progressive now and that there is not as many people pushing back on the other side, at least at that level. I don't know if you see well, it that he, way. He, but. he certainly was a, a free speech absolutist. He always said that less speech is what's more dangerous. But he wasn't around for Facebook. He wasn't around for algorithms and all the ways that it trains people and hypnotizes people and turns people into a cult. So we don't really know what his opinion would be about communication right now. And his daughter Kelly said, Whatever you think his opinion would be, you're probably wrong, and what it would be would blow your mind, but we don't know. (laughs) So it's difficult, because back then he would always say, hey, if you don't like something, change the channel. But, you know, this idea of how the algorithms feed you news and information and want you depressed and want you angry and, and what it does to your mind and what it does to your belief system is something that he was never made aware of. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like it's had any impact on your stand-up and what you want to do on stage, watching so much of him and taking this deep dive into Carlin? I think the most important thing I take from him 
is you should just say what you believe. And I always quote Colin Quinn because he says, you know, you can say whatever you want. You just have to mean it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's true. If you're thoughtful and you have opinions, there is a, a way to say things in a creative way and a, and a funny way. I, I'm not a big fear monger about you're not allowed to say anything anymore. I understand that environment and I do see what's going on. But I think like in every generation, there were limits and people found innovative ways to express what they wanted to express. And the great comedians that I enjoy are not having any problems performing right now. And most of the people who are saying that it's difficult are selling out arenas. <laughs> exactly. So I, I'm not sure exactly, you know, what, what the big problem is at this moment. Seems like everyone's doing well and their careers are, are the very big, solid. The big problem seems to be that people don't like being criticized, I think. Well, certainly comedians are very thin-skinned. You know, for people who sit on stage and call everybody out, if you call them out, they just fall apart or get enraged. And I never understood that part of stand-up comedy. If I make a movie, you're allowed to say it sucks. But comedians, for some reason, can't handle it if you say a joke isn't good. And, yeah, or they and feel like, yeah, they, they, it somehow is shutting them down or it's, 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 it goes against free speech to criticize what they're saying. It's okay to have part of the crowd mad at you. I mean, you're not doing anything interesting if part of the crowd doesn't get mad at you or not get it. So, yeah, but maybe, you know, I, I'm sure there are people who do a certain type of challenging comedy uh, that feels like the environment has made it much more difficult to do that. And it certainly is annoying when you're just trying to make people laugh and people in the crowd act offended and, and yell things out. But I don't remember it ever being much better than it is right now. <laughs> I feel like it's always been that way where you make the wrong joke and people are like, um, but as a fan of comedy, I, I really am enjoying what people are doing. So I feel like there's a pretty big mix on all sides of uh, the political spectrum right now. There's riotously funny people, and there's incredible podcasts, and people are expressing themselves. So nothing seems to be going wrong, uh, I don't think. Have you ever had the experience of feeling it from the other side, of being criticized for something that you felt you shouldn't be criticized for? Or? I remember doing a bunch of Donald Trump jokes at a show I did in Boston, and it was a really successful concert. And someone wrote an article about it, and it was a very positive review. And then it got picked up by a bunch of right-wing sites. And then people were calling my office with death threats because of some, you know, probably generically harsh Donald Trump <laughs> jokes. And that certainly isn't fun when it happens. And it always feels a little organized in, in some way. It doesn't feel that organic when, when that happens. And it makes you think twice about how you express yourself, but but yet, you know, we all still have to you know, do what we do. No one did show up to get me, so I guess that was a good sign. That's a win. Yeah. <laughs> I've been reading your new book, Sicker in the Head, which I really am loving. Um, and of course, I'm very jealous of everyone you got to, to talk to in it. Um, 
including some people who don't do a lot of interviews like uh, Pete Davidson and Nathan Fielder. How did you how did you approach the interviews uh, this time around? Because this is your second volume of it. And I know you, you did most of them during the the pandemic. And I assume sort of you, you did them uh, remotely mostly, right? When the pandemic started, I realized, oh, everyone is home. So they can't <laughs> say no because they're home. And I do the books for charity. I do it for this charity called 826. Dave Eggers started it, and it provides free tutoring and literacy programs to kids in different cities around the country. Yeah. So, so when you, that's so when you say that, it's hard to say no. Yeah, Yeah, because I, I'm like, I give all the money away. It's not for me. It's for the kids. Uh, and then if you say no, you're an ass. So <laughs> between that and everyone being stuck home during the pandemic, a lot of people were saying yes. And I tried to reach people that... I dreamed of being able to talk to and people that I look up to that I want to ask questions to as a fan, but also to learn. I mean, to sit with Nathan Fielder for two hours and ask him about his work, what his intentions were and how he actually executes it was really, really fun. I think he has never done an interview where he broke it down before. I think he avoids he's, those He's interviews. pretty famously, uh, yeah, doesn't like being interviewed. So. Even in the middle of it, he looked at me like, why am I here? Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because he was just in the middle of John Wilson and I asked him about it and he's like, I can't even explain it to you. You, gotta yeah, see it. you just got to watch I, it. I wish I was able, I wish I had seen it at the time to talk about it. And then David Letterman, who, you know, obviously has meant so much to all of us. That was the dream when I started stand-up comedy was to be on David Letterman's show. And I remember when Adam Sandler got it when we were living together. And it just it just seemed incredible that he was going to be on David Letterman. Uh, and he changed so many lives around me at that time. It was really interesting to talk to him in a reflective mood post-ending the show. And... You know, he has some distance now, so he, he can tell you how it felt to do the show uh, and the, the pressure of it. Yeah. And he starts telling you about all the different projects that he wants to do, but is too afraid to tell anyone. And I was waiting for him to reveal what they are, but he doesn't. I hope he does all of them. I mean, I love his new, <laughs> new show and I love that he's out there a little bit because he was someone that you never saw anywhere. You know, he was deep in the show and his life. And now every once in a while, someone's like, hey. David Letterman went to the comedy store last night. Uh, and he's such a nice man, and he's so riotously funny. And then you know, people like Lin-Manuel Miranda and Whoopi Goldberg you know, were, were so interesting. And Rami Youssef is one of my favorite Fantastic. comedy minds. Uh, and hopefully people get something out of it. I was always surprised at how big the first book, Sick in the Head, got. And it really became a bit of a Bible for young creative people not just in comedy, but in, in the arts, because it is people, they're, they're saying how they do it, but they're also saying why they do it and what happened in their lives that they think led to them being creative. So it is the kind of book you could take a highlighter out. And if you took the book seriously, you would learn a lot about how to have a creative life. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a similar project to what I feel like I'm doing with this podcast is because I'm so obsessed with comedy and, and really, you know, wanting to know how people do it and, and as you said why they do it and, and all the other issues that go along with that and it's something you've been doing since you were a kid the first book had a lot more of those interviews that you did you know when, when you were a kid um, do you feel like uh, your interview 
style or the types of things you want to know have really changed uh, over the time? Or has it been pretty consistent? In the beginning, I just wanted to know anything about how you do it and how you get in it. Because you were trying to do it, maybe. Yes, it was about trying to understand something so maybe I could follow that dream. Now, I think I am very interested as a friend to people about how they're doing. How, how are you feeling? Are you happy? Are you finding balance? Are you finding wisdom? Are you struggling? And then I'm also very interested in what they want to say and the, the way they want to say it. You know, to, to talk to Lin-Manuel Miranda and get to ask him about his creative process is so helpful to me. How do you find the strength and the courage to sit at the computer and do it again and hope you could pull it off? I remember when Hamilton came out, I thought, I wonder how he's going to do because to have a hit that, that's this big, it, it could shut people down. You could just get afraid to make more stuff. And he's just gone the opposite way. He, he, he's so prolific and has yeah, done so I, many I, incredible things <laughs> since Hamilton. And I always want to know what mindset allows you to do that. Yeah. Well, he hasn't done another Broadway show yet, so we're waiting for that. But I'm sure when we least expect it. Um, it also, I had never really thought about until reading your interview with Cameron Crowe, all the parallels between the two of you as, you well, know, that parallels he, me stealing. It's very <laughs> different than parallels. <laughs> you, you were aware of what, of, uh, of what he was doing when you started, uh, interviewing people as a kid. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. I, I, well, that, oh, that's what I meant. You have parallels in your film. It's, it's a, there's a lot of parallels. There's parallels in your films and in the fact that you interviewed people, heroes as kids, him with musicians and, and you with comedians? I mean, you know what? I, I don't think I remember when I first was aware that there was a guy at Rolling Stone who started interviewing people when he was 16 years old. Yeah, yeah. I probably learned it when Fast Times at Ridgemont High came out, which was, I think, in my, maybe it was my junior or, or senior year of high school. And, and it, is, it is an incredible, inspiring story you know, going back to high school, you know, for a semester or however long he did it and writing a book about high school and then turning it into one of the great comedies of all time with Amy Heckerling. That's re remarkable. And I've always connected with him due to our mad obsession with trying to get close to the thing we love for him. It's music for me, it's comedy and music, quite frankly. And I love his gumption which we talk about in the interview. And I think he found a way to make movies in the beginning where he had young people talk the way young people talk. And when I first started writing, you know, I loved James Brooks and Barry Levinson, but there were scenes in Fast Times at Ridgemont High that felt so familiar to me and my friends. And it, it said to me, oh, just how we are might be worth a movie. Just the, the way we joke with each other, the mistakes we're making, what idiots we are. And I also love that in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, it was serious. And Jennifer Jason Lee loses her virginity and then she gets pregnant and has an abortion and it's handled very delicately and seriously. And he found a way to pivot between comedy and drama in a brilliant way. Amy Heckerling, of course, did that through her direction as well. And that's what I always wanted to do. Can I be hard funny but not toss out the humanity of it and the credibility of it? Yeah, I was just talking to Michael Sarah about that uh, around Superbad um, and how much I related to that and felt like it was just this 
very pure reflection of my own experience as a, in a in high school. I, I think you know that his work and Jonah's work in that movie uh, has held up because it, it is so emotionally truthful. And obviously, Seth and Evan and their work with Greg Mottola, the director, did something very special because. It is about like two friends who love each other who are very afraid of what life will be like when they're not around each other. And that's, you know, that's, uh, I think, why it has held up so well. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the types of projects that, you, that you're working on now, what you want to do. What have you not done in show business at this point that you still want to do? I mean, as someone who's done so much, are there things out there you're like, you know, I'd really like to try that or I'd like to, um, you know, do this thing that I haven't done? I'd like to write a play or a musical. I've thought about it and almost done it a few <laughs> times and I always chicken out and don't write a word. But I think our process of how we punch things up and do table reads and and, and develop our scripts is similar to a Broadway show. And as a kid, there was nothing I enjoyed more than going to see all of those Neil Simon plays like Broadway Bound and uh, Laughter on the, what floor? 42nd floor? What floor was it? We don't know, <laughs> but it's that one. Uh, and I always feel like that's missing on Broadway, that you don't see a lot of those types of plays. Yeah, those types and, of comedies. Yeah, human comedies, you know, for the theater... That's that's what I'd like to try at, at some point. Um, so now I want to do our segment called The First Laugh, which didn't exist when you were on this podcast the first time. But uh, so now we'll do it with you here. Um, and it's really just about uh, talking about a bunch of firsts in your life and career as they pertain to comedy. So I think you're the perfect person for this. Uh, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid or one of them? The Marx Brothers were the first people that I, I fell in love with. I always talk about Harpo because I read somewhere that they would always have someone beat up Harpo at the beginning of the movie because if someone beat up Harpo, the Marx Brothers could do anything to them for the rest of the movie. <laughs> and I said that to Seth and Evan when they were working on Superbad, that you have to do something to, to Jonah and Sarah which will allow for a lot of their bad behavior and bad talk. And what they came up with was a guy at the 7-Eleven spits on Jonah in the first <laughs> five minutes. And it, it completely works. So you can never doubt the writers of the Marx Brothers yeah. movie. And then later he gets hit by the car. That that, that helps too. <laughs> exactly. Uh, do you remember the first time that you knew you were funny, that you had the ability to make other people laugh? I probably was just so obnoxious <laughs> as a kid. I don't know when I thought I was funny. I do remember in elementary school putting on some sort of show at lunchtime for, for kids. I don't know what I did. I probably tried to write a weekend update. But this is <laughs> at like 11 or 10. So I, I must have had some sense that that's what I wanted to do. Because Saturday Night Live started in 75. I, I was born in 67. So... When that hit, I was in a very formative stage and thought that that was the greatest thing in the world. What do you remember about the very first time you performed stand-up? Uh, where was it? How did it go? Um, all of that. The first time I performed stand-up, I went to a place called Chuckles Comedy Club. I believe Joe Bolster was the host. And it was an open mic night. I brought my best friends, Ronnie and Kevin. And I was not doing well. And at some point I said to the crowd... I don't know how to handle hecklers, so I like to practice right now. So just heckle me, and I'll get some practice. <laughs> and people just started screaming, fuck you, you fucking asshole. 
And, and then my joke was I would take a long pause and go, see, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to handle that. I need to practice more. But what happened that night was they just would not stop screaming. And then my friends started yelling at them like, shut up, you shut up. He's talking, shut up. And it almost becomes a fight in the audience because I'm, I'm so bad. And then my closing line was always the same, which was, you know, the great Jerry Lewis said, you learn nothing about how to be funny by getting laughs. You only learn by not getting laughs. And I have gotten a college education here tonight. <laughs> so you, you went in knowing you weren't going to get laughs, so you had that all prepared. I was ready. I knew, I knew the beating I was going to take, and then I took it. What about the first joke that, that really worked, that really did make people laugh uh, in your act that you could keep going back to? The first joke that worked for me was probably just something terrible. I mean, there were jokes that worked, but they're nothing to be proud of. I mean, I remember having a bit about how when you have a cold, one side of your nose is clogged and the other one is clear, and then out of the blue, it switches. Like, I had <laughs> jokes like that. That was as deep as I got. It's very uh, <laughs> observational. Yeah, it was very, it was like the observations of someone who has zero life experience. <laughs> and then maybe the first good bit I wrote was I talked about how I had adopted a child uh, you know, in another country, you know, how they would you know, yeah, send the commercials, food to yeah. another country. And it was my letter back to my child. And the, the whole letter was not understanding how good I had it and talking about tennis and Thanksgiving and <laughs> like, trying to relate, but everything was, was offensive. I always ask stand-up comedians about their late-night stand-up debuts. Um, you had the very unique experience of being a guest on late-night shows, I think, dozens of times before you performed stand-up on The Tonight Show. Um, so what was it like to you know, have done so many talk shows and, and late-night shows and then actually get to perform stand-up for the first time? I believe that was in 2015. The first time I did stand-up, yeah, back then, I, I, you know, I, I started doing stand-up again after a multi-decade break, and I did it on... The Tonight Show uh, with Jimmy Fallon. And I think they asked me to do it because they just thought, well, if it's funny, it's funny. If it's not funny, it's like a curiosity. Yeah. <laughs> that director Judd is doing stand up. They didn't show. know what they were going to get. <laughs> yeah. The first guest was Sandler, and that made me feel good. And it was great to share that with him. I knew they thought maybe it wouldn't go well because no one asked me what I was going to say. You know, usually <laughs> they really put you through your paces and they go you over really your set with you and help you. But they didn't ask me anything yeah, about what I was going to say. Yeah, that's a privilege. And, <laughs> and I, but I worked very hard on it, and, and it went well. And it was one of the great you know, comedy experiences for me. Was yeah, to get, to and do that, that. Was, that was the first time that most people saw your uh, Cosby bit, which has become legendary in its own right, I think. Uh, yes, I, I, I wasn't going to do the Cosby bit which was about Bill Cosby hiding the newspaper from Camille so she wouldn't learn about what was going on. And then I did it that weekend at the Comedy Cellar after I had shown the audience my actual Tonight Show bit. And then a bunch of people like Amy Schumer said, you have to do that on the Tonight Show. And I said, that's pretty harsh. I mean, you think I can do that on the Tonight Show? And they said, you must and so I'm, I'm glad that I did. Do you think he's still talking about it? You think he like says like, you ever been in trouble with the wife? <laughs> you ever like, 
get into the doghouse with the wife, you're in the doghouse with the wife because of something that you did. Like the other day, there was something about me in the paper, and uh, I didn't want my wife to read the paper. So I got up at 5 in the morning, and I snuck out to the driveway to get the paper. And I hid the paper, and the next day I got up and I hid the paper. And then the next day, I forgot to get the paper. And my wife, she said to me, what is this in the paper about the raping and the drugging and the women? And I said, do you like your life? Speaking of, did you get to see the uh, W. Kamau Bell's Cosby? Uh, we need to talk about Cosby series, and what do you think of that? I'm so glad that that he made it. It's so important for all of those uh, victims to have that space and that time to to share, you know, what happened. I've met many of them, and the damage that he did to them is something that affected them their entire lives. It, it, it really hurts you psychically in a, in a very permanent way. And it's, it's important to hear them outside of the, the moment where you can you know, digest something, which is horrifying. It, you know, obviously, it's a person that we all found very funny and talented. But in a way, he's like a serial killer. He, he, he destroyed so many lives and i'm so glad that that he made that and gave them that opportunity yeah it's a really fantastic series next is do you have a a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now but wasn't funny when it happened is there anything that comes to mind (laughs) something that makes me laugh now but wasn't funny when it happened well that's most of life (laughs) you know is uh things are funnier later you know all those stories from knocked up about giving birth, you know, were fictionalized versions of things that we had gone through. That certainly were not funny that day, although I did have an awareness that, like, this is all so crazy that I'll probably tell this story in some way. I, I, at some you know point, you know, the, the doctor not showing up for, you know, the birth. You know, that was something that, that really that, happened? Yeah, and that's something that was not funny. At, at the time, it was a, a nightmare, but uh, I'm I'm glad that you know what comedy is about is you know taking the difficult things in life and trying to turn them into something that makes people happy. And I think that's the most fun thing about being in comedy is when bad things happen. I think in a way you don't suffer as much because there's a part of you that goes, I might be able to use this. And so the bad things actually have some value. And I've been reading a lot of Buddhism lately and. There's a thing in Buddhism where they say, use everything for the path. You know, everything that happens to you, good and bad, you use to move on your path to wisdom and understanding. And I think that's what comedy is, is everything for the path. Yeah, that's a, it's a Pete Holmes thing that I always think about that he says when, I, when something bad happens in his life, he just thinks it would be a great episode of the TV show about his life. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, I like to ask comedians to shout out any comedy that's really making them laugh right now so what's the what's the last piece of comedy or tv show or anything that that really made you laugh recently that you've seen what what has made me laugh recently you know i always say the same thing which is maria bamford 
She just <laughs> is the funniest. During the pandemic, she would do these Zoom shows where you could pay money to watch her on Zoom. And she would just do an hour to nothing. She didn't have the mics on. Yeah, there were no, there were no the laughs who coming watching. through. Nothing. So all you're hearing is just Maria in a room talking <laughs> into Zoom. And she's riotously funny every time. And I loved uh, rewatching Lady Dynamite. You know, during the pandemic, she's my favorite. And then I love Laura Bites is a really funny comedian uh, that I've worked with a bunch at at Largo. I worked with Meg Stalter the other night. Oh my god, uh, she from, she kills hacks. me. And she is so funny. There's an Instagram account that's uh, called Reen Machine. It's Ryan Asher, and that's. That's some funny stuff. I just have to say, go go, go on there uh, because because that there's some films on there that really make me laugh. Nice. Um, well, Judd, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. It's always great to see you and talk to you and uh, hear what you have to say about comedy. So, thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Okay, thank you again to Judd Apatow for that great conversation, and I'm already looking forward to the next time we get to nerd out about comedy together. The Bubble will be available to stream on Netflix starting this Friday, April 1st. And Sicker in the Head is available for purchase starting today wherever you get your books, with proceeds benefiting 826 National, a really great organization that helps young writers. We'll put a link to buy it in the description for this episode as well. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find the show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.